am I grateful for our leaders? I'm grateful for deacons like Eric and the way that he just tirelessly pours into us as a church and helps to facilitate uh, ministry in such a practical way. And so Eric, Kylie, thank you for, well, thank you for who you are. Well, turn in your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish out our series today uh, that we've titled Dear Church. We began this back just after Easter and then over the next couple of weeks. uh, Shane is going to preach the next couple of weeks. Uh, Figured that since he's staying we might as well put him to work and uh, so I'm actually excited that you're going to hear from him and his heart on a couple of areas of discipleship for us as a church. And then on September 18th as we kind of move into this new season that we're calling our fall kickoff. Uh, We're going to actually begin a new series in the book of Hosea on not safe for church. The book of Hosea, not safe for church. And I'm excited for what uh, we're going to be getting into in that book, but I'm going to hold that uh, until that day. I would request your prayers this week. uh, I'm going to be speaking at a secondary school camp. Uh, A lot of Christian schools have begun to do kind of a a camp or a getaway or retreat at the beginning of the year. And while this is on site at the campus, uh, speaking over three days to a group of, of middle schoolers and high schoolers uh, over these next few days. I would just covet your prayers. I'm not assuming that because they're in a Christian school that they are themselves followers of Jesus. And uh, I just have faith, uh, in the same way I have faith for today, that there, there would be those who are here that would be saved. I have faith for the same thing uh, as, as we're going into the great commandment, the greatest commandment uh, from Matthew chapter 22. So I would I'd really just appreciate your prayers this week, Wednesday through Friday as I'm with that secondary camp here in town uh, with my family in the evenings, but uh, a totally different rhythm those three days. Before we go into God's word today, can we just pray together that, that he would speak to us, that he would open our ears to hear. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it, it guides and directs us. Thank you for how it, it equips us for works of ministry. But more than that, thank you for how it calls us out of ourselves to be those who are representatives of who you are. And so God, in your word today, do that work afresh in our hearts. Do that work afresh in our minds. Open our eyes even more to see. Open our ears even more to hear. Would you kind of knock out the walls of how it is that we think of you and we would interact with who you are in your glory today? Lord, when we walk out today, would we, would we think differently about who you are would we think differently about who we are called to be in light of your glory and may our lives reflect that in jesus name amen amen now if you've been here for any of our series you'll realize that we kind of did a sub-series over the summer in first corinthians 12 through 14 on what it looks like to be a spirit filled church. And, and much of 1 Corinthians is kind of directed toward the church, the church that is gathered together. But in 2 Corinthians, you could almost make the argument that Paul, Paul's kind of all over the place in terms of his subject matter. And so rather than trying to preach the entire book of 2 Corinthians in, in one sermon, you're welcome, uh, I thought let's just focus in on chapter 5 because there seems to be something very practical on Paul's heart for the church. And my, my hope today is that uh, as we go through this passage, not only will I be able to reflect my own heart for you as a church and, and how it is that I feel for you as a church, not only do I hope to be able to reflect what Paul's heart was for the church in Corinth 
what my goal is is to actually represent God's heart for the people that he has redeemed and he has rescued as his own. No small task. Sometimes I have a hard enough time communicating my own heart on different things, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, and, and yet, here today, we have the privilege of seeing God's heart for his people. And, and I wonder, why is it that we face those challenges? Well, Paul actually, in writing to the church in Corinth, we're in 2 Corinthians today, but in, in, in this correspondence, it's gone back and forth. And we know that we don't have every piece of correspondence that went back and forth. And we know that there are things that, that may seem very confusing. Like in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about these super apostles. And that's kind of how I've always thought about Paul and what's a super apostle. And, and then you realize, whoa, it's not an apostle at all. It's just how people are thinking about it and in the day. And they're, they're kind of giving this attribution of, of greatness to results rather than spiritual fruit and maturity. And, and then you just realize like, oh, okay, so there are things that are going on in Corinth that may actually be still happening in the church today. So in, in the day, what it meant to be a, a Corinthian in the Corinthian church meant that they were, they were living for the moment. They were focused on living for the moment. Or, or the second thing, that they were kind of really uh, getting their kicks by just talking themselves up. It was to be impressed by those who had a good education, uh, they used their brain well, that they had good speech when it came to the way that they were able to articulate themselves. To be a Corinthian was to, to switch out a relationship very easily, maybe even political or religious allegiances. They were just kind of, every time the wind changed, their relationships changed as well. And you begin to realize the things that were happening in the Corinthian church are still present in the world today. Maybe they're even present in the church today, in our own hearts today. So it's, it's not a stretch to think about the fact that not only am I trying to communicate my heart about something, not only is Paul addressing the church in Corinth, but God is still addressing his church today on these issues. God is still addressing his church today. So let's hear his heart for us as his people. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 to begin with. For we know that if the tent is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that there would be not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, he who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If I were to summarize this first part in, in addressing us as a church today, I would maybe want to say it this way. Dear church, look to the future with hope rather than living for the moment. Dear church, look to the future with hope rather than living for the moment. You know, in our, in our own city, 
We have so many different amusement parks. And so you think about going to one of those amusement parks. There's many of the rides and, and many of the uh, activities that you can go to that you actually have to put on these 3D glasses to, to experience it fully. Even in the, the parts of the park that are kind of fully immersed in these giant scenes, you, you still may be putting on 3D glasses. And why is that? Well, if you try to go through that amusement in some way where you don't have those glasses on, everything that you see is distorted. Everything that you see is distorted. You can't fully appreciate and enjoy the experience because you don't have the right lenses in place. And for those who are in the church, we, we need to have the lens of eternity in place to understand rightly what we're walking through today. We want to have the lens of eternity in place. We want to have that dropped in place so that as we are going through life, we have a right way to filter what is going on. We filter it in light of eternity. We filter all of these things in light of eternity. So let's, let's make sure that we're clear on something, just how important this truth is for us as believers. The resurrection hope that we have for eternity is one of the defining features of Christianity. In other words, we don't put all of our hope in this life. I don't put all of my hope in the day-to-day. Oh, but I do let it slip from view so easily. I don't even have to be turned upside down. I can just bump into something in life, and all of a sudden that lens is distorted and gone. And what am I doing? I'm focusing on the moment. So dear church, dear church, look to the future with hope. Look to the future with hope rather than living for the moment. You know, here in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, Paul is referring to our present and mortal body as a tent. And he speaks of the future body that we will receive as a house. And so we're, we're presently clothed in our mortal flesh, but there is one day where we will be further clothed with a glorified body that will swallow up this mortal body. I don't know about you, I, I, there's, not a, there's not a ton of information on what this looks like. I don't know if this means that I'm able to like swap parts out. I would have some requests on that. There are things that I would love to, to maybe change about myself, and yet there is something about the way that I have been designed that will be glorified when it is further clothed in eternity. That's what Paul is pointing our attention to. So I don't put my hope in swapping out parts. I put my hope in that there's a day where this will glorify God perfectly. It's just a tent today. There's a house coming one day. There's a house coming one day. See, gospel-believing Christians, we, we experience the reality of a resurrection hope even now. Not through this tent, but through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get to have this foretaste of heaven through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which these passages tell us He is the guarantee of our inheritance, that we will have possession of it. Why? Because, we are, because He has a possession of us. He has possession of us. He dwells in us. Actually, just a few verses before these verses, in 2 Corinthians 4.14, it says this, Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. This is a gospel promise. The Christian does not need to fear death. But you can confidently know that it has been perfectly defeated. We actually look back to Paul's uh, correspondence with the church in Corinth. In in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 
54 through 58, when he says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, this resurrection hope actually has a very practical and present power for those who walk in Jesus Christ. So whatever you're facing today, Whatever challenge, whatever suffering, whatever trial, whatever burden, whatever fear, whatever discouragement that you may experience or that you are currently experiencing, it is not as final as death may seem. It's not as final as death may seem. To know that Christ has defeated death is to know that he has taken away the ultimate sting of all of our present sufferings. Maybe I could say it this way, based on what we see in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight when we believe God's permanent, death-defeating promise defines us more than our momentary experiences. When our, when our perspective shifts, when that lens gets dropped into place, and we realize that there is something greater that defines us than these momentary experiences, what is that? God's permanent, death-defeating promise. You know, for some of us, life right now is actually quite rich and quite good. You, you may be thinking about this and say, well, this is, this is not helpful for me today because things are good. See, for those who believe... It's not the goodness of life right now that defines us. It's the future that we put our hope in. And, and I would actually caution you if, you, if you're one of those ones that's kind of sitting back and just going, well, life seems good right now. Don't fall for that trap. Don't fall for that trap to live as if that convenience or that comfort is all that you have been called to live for. No, it's the sure future that we have that shapes the way that we act and react right now. This world, this life... It's not the only thing. It's not the ultimate expression of our lives. And so we walk in a way that's shaped by what God has revealed, not by what can be seen. Not by what can be seen right now. And that's good news for those who are kind of walking through it right now, isn't it? I like the idea of of everything that I'm experiencing right now not being all that there is. But for those who are walking in comfort, let me caution you all the more. Do not fail the test of prosperity in this life. Look to the prosperous future that we have in Jesus Christ. See, Paul acknowledges the reality of what happens to us with the burdens that we can face in this life. They cause us to groan. They they cause us to cry out. Maybe you've had this this thought of, it's not supposed to be that way. Maybe you've you've had that groaning that that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, or excuse me, Romans chapter uh, 8, where it says that there are groanings that only spirit can understand. Maybe you've experienced those things that, that I don't even know how to put this into words, and so the spirit wells up within you, and you begin to groan and to cry aloud to the Lord. Our burdens can cause us to groan in the same way that creation does. But our groanings are not rooted in today. We groan with good courage. We groan with contentment that whether we are at home or away, as it says in verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we can make it our aim to please Him. We can make it our aim to please Him. 
Let's continue through the passage today, the next three verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known, to, known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. Maybe I'd summarize it this way. If I were writing you today, I would say, Dear church, be more concerned with pleasing God than with pleasing people. Dear church, be more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing people. See, the key principle in this short section is is very simply this. Verse 11 spells it out. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. What does that mean? We influence them. We, we bring sway to the way that they are living. We convince them. We persuade others. Think of it this way. The resurrection power that we've received, it directs us to become this sacrificial minister of reconciliation, as we'll read in just a few moments. Our love for Christ compels us to speak of Him despite opposition and affliction. And as we go through these verses, it's important to realize what's happening. Maybe I could sub- <clears throat> excuse me, summarize it this way. The exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness radically transforms us. The exchange for our sin for Christ's uh, righteousness radically transforms us. And there is this legal standing that shifts from unrighteousness to righteousness. And, and our relationship status with God has moved from conflict to reconciled. It ensures peace and it ensures communion, which we're going we're gonna to gather over in just a moment. It ensures peace and communion with God. Our very being is transferred from this impending death of this world. And it's transferred into the promised life of God's new creation and order. It leads us to this increased appetite, not for the things of the world, but an increased appetite for pleasing God with our lives and a decreased appetite for the things of the world. And our perspective is altered in a way that we no longer focus on the outward. When it comes to ourselves, when it comes to others that we interact with, we don't focus on the outward. We focus on what's going on inside that person. This this radiance that's either coming from them or the darkness that resides within them. We are more concerned with pleasing God than we are pleasing people. And where does that start with? Well, it starts with the same place that wisdom does. It starts with the fear of the Lord. And so, dear church, be more concerned about pleasing God than you are pleasing people. Paul wants us to put away the thought that it's all about our outward appearance and to focus instead on living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You know, we we see this happen, actually, in a number of different fronts. When somebody is maybe trying to give up some type of addictive pattern or, or maybe somebody is just trying to, to eat more healthy and, and they're trying to come to a place where they're trying to maybe stop something that's an addiction or, or something like nicotine or smoking or, or maybe even something that's related to drugs where it's, it's destroying their body and what they begin to understand is it's not just about the action, it's actually about understanding something greater that's going on inside of them. So for example, when you understand that oxygen is a gift... The thought necessarily isn't that I'm going to just fill my lungs with smoke, right? You you understand that oxygen is a gift. 
Maybe if somebody comprehends that good health is a gift, you're not going to abuse your body with different things to try to just numb the pain. Maybe when a Christian begins to understand that grace is a gift of God, it means that we will make the choice to say no to wrong and yes to right. In other words, we don't presume on the grace of God because when the Christian loses sight of grace, that's when an irresponsible and this licentious life begins to come into them. And what is that? That is a life different than what's been given to them by the grace of God. Dear church, be more concerned with fearing God than fearing people. Fearing others does damage to our lives, doesn't it? We've all experienced that in one way or another. It stops evangelism in its tracks. It makes our ability to lead be kind of hamstrung by the moment. It stops us from saying the hard things that actually pushes us to lying or saying things that just are like half-truths. Trying to manipulate people and saying things that just simply make them feel good in the moment. But thank God in Christ we have no need to act like that. Because Christ has died and he has risen. And we are united to him so we fear him alone. Let's continue to read in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Perhaps I would summarize this section like this. Dear church, love people because of Christ rather than being impressed by them. Love people because of Christ rather than being impressed by them. In verse 14, Paul says this, that the love of Christ controls us. The word control here it includes both the idea of, of direction and the motivation that is behind them. And so you may have in your Bibles this morning through different translations uh, a word like compels or constrains us. What is, it, what is it speaking to? It's speaking both to motivation and to direction. I mean, we think about Paul as he meets Christ on the Damascus Road encountering him and receiving the gospel, Paul's way of relating to other people has been radically changed. It will never be the same way again. And so now as a follower of Christ, he is compelled, he is driven to love people as Christ did and as Christ still does today. And when he says that Christ died for all, he's, he's not trying to introduce some new form of theology, some universalism. He's actually speaking in the way that we can just plainly read this text. He is speaking to those who follow Jesus Christ, who have said that I am submitting my life to his lordship and his ways. Not only do I recognize that he is my savior, that I have a, a need for a savior, but I am recognizing him as the lord of my life as well, that he can give that kind of direction, that he can change the motivation of the things that I do. And so he is both Savior and Lord, and and Paul is not introducing some form of universalism. He is actually speaking to those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and say, let the claims be backed up by your actions. So if you've already submitted yourself to Christ, that means you're dying to yourself. It means that the only real option for us is to learn how to live for Christ. And Paul goes on to explain that means something very practical. That means loving other people. 
loving other people. Giving ourselves up for them, just as Jesus himself did. Let's continue to read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Dear church, pursue gospel relationships relentlessly rather than relationships built on convenience. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? The atoning work of Jesus Christ is so rich and so profound that the Bible describes it in a, in a bunch of different ways. You think about the word justification, that's, that's kind of law or court language. When you think about sanctification, that is temple and sacrifice language. When you think about adoption, that is family language. And reconciliation is friendship language. It's the opposite of alienation. It's the opposite of being pushed away. See, as fallen sinners, we were alienated from God. If you're here today and you have not said, I need a Savior. If you're here today and and you're continuing to claim that He has no lordship claim on your life, you are alienating yourself from God. And reconciliation says you are no longer alienated from you. You are welcomed into right, right relationship. What is that? That's unmerited favor. That is amazing grace. See, at the core of the good news of the gospel is this exchange. Scandalous as it is. There's another word for it in theological terms. It's imputation. Our sin is imputed. It is reckoned. It is accounted for. It is imputed to Christ as he is made to be sin for us. And then his righteousness is imputed. It is accounted to our behalf. His righteousness is imputed to us as we receive freely. The German reformer Martin Luther calls this imputation the happy exchange. You'll hear me often use the word that it's a scandalous exchange. Why? Well, I think that Paul spells it out. In verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That seems pretty scandalous to me. That seems pretty scandalous to me. That he would take on my sin having known no sin. That he would take on your sin having known no sin. Why? So that we might receive the righteousness that is from God. No, we need to pursue gospel relationships in light of this. We don't don't need to be like the church in Corinth. We don't need to be like people in the world today where we just change out relationships for convenience. Oh, you don't agree with that? Well, that's fine. I'm done with you. I'm not going to block you. I'm not going to unfriend you. I'm just going to hide you in my feed. I want you to exist, just not to me. 
aren't we fickle people? Encountering a faithful God. Him who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Scandalous. Because that transfer is not just some dry, cold matter. This last week I've been re-watching a favorite movie of mine, Bridge of Spies. And I love the movie because in, in one of the closing scenes, I'm not ruining anything, it's literally the title. On a bridge, they're exchanging spies. Don't overthink it. But there's a beautiful moment where Tom Hanks' character is watching for how it is that the Russian delegation will receive their spy. And he asks him, what are you facing? He said, there's, there's one way to know. How I'm greeted at the car door. If I'm embraced, I'll be given to my family. If they simply show me the door, I'll be executed. Now I'll let you read the end credits to see where that goes. We are embraced by our Savior that we might have life and have it more abundantly. In the midst of this scandalous or beautiful exchange, what is happening? We are welcomed in and embraced as family. We're not just being shown the door. Yes, here, fine, take the transfer. Yes, fine. He's not putting up with us in that way. He's embracing us as children, as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This is not just transactional. This is relational with God. And what does that mean? Our relationships with others are not transactional either. Because we have received of this great relationship, we get to express that to others. Now I want to, as as we're just kind of moving to a close here today, I want to just kind of set a frame of reference for us as we think through these different aspects of what Paul's call is to the church. That we look to the future with hope rather than living for the moment. That we are more concerned with pleasing God rather than pleasing people. That we love people because, because of Christ rather than being impressed by them. And that we pursue gospel relationships relentlessly rather than relationships built on convenience. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he is addressing the gathered church. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 addresses us as individuals. I wonder today if there aren't ways that we need to practically think about how it is that we live this out even within this church. It's easy for us to think about how we can go and live this out in the world. Sometimes, sometimes that's not easy for us, depending on your personality, depending on the things that you, you kind of struggle with at different times. But I wonder today if we don't take a, a kind of a page from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as he's addressing the church when they gather together in communion, he tells them to examine their own hearts. And so let's just take a moment to maybe kind of walk through that differently today. Examine your own hearts. Look into your own hearts and see, are there things that are there? Are there things that reside there against a brother or a sister, maybe even sitting here in the church with you? Maybe sitting right next to you right now. Maybe sitting a section over and it seems like they're so far. I can't get over there to reconcile with them. 
Think of the chasm that Christ crossed for your behalf. Think of the chasm that he crossed on your behalf from heaven to earth, taking on flesh that he himself created, that he might sacrifice it again for you. Your brother or sister across the room is not too far to be out of reach today. Maybe there are ways that we can think through this very practically in terms of pursuing gospel relationships. Maybe there are questions that we should, we should think through. Things like this. Maybe it's that you need to repent for your focus on immediate things and ask God to lift your head so that you can look forward to what lies ahead for all those who are in Christ. And you can be sobered by what lies ahead for those who are without Christ. Maybe that's a way that we can kind of examine our own hearts and minds this morning. Maybe, maybe it would be that you need to recalibrate your priorities so that you're really only concerned about pleasing God rather than pleasing people. Maybe today as we examine our hearts before we receive communion together, it could be that you need to face the fact that you don't actually love anybody other than yourself. I don't mean that to sound harsh. I mean it to be evaluated in light of the good news of the gospel. Perhaps the idea of loving someone else selflessly is a struggle for you, and you need to throw yourself to Christ in the midst of this moment for help. Possibly you've just quietly given up on relationships with Christian brothers or sisters. You've given yourself a license to harden your heart against someone. Maybe you've, you need to revive your efforts and be reconciled to them in the gospel. You see, that's what God is asking for in this passage. He is asking for something of His dear church. A church that's so dear to Him that He would give up His life that he would take the stripes on his back, that he would have his hands and his feet nailed to a cross, that he would give up his very last breath, that he might declare over you the good news of it is finished. It's dear to his heart. It was worth him giving up his very life for. And yet we can so easily slip into these ways of thinking like, thank you, Jesus, I'm good. Maybe that's a way for us to evaluate our own hearts and minds this morning. Maybe you're not even there. Maybe you've even received of communion before, and yet in your heart it's always just been an act so that you're, you can look good in front of your friends or family, the person that's sitting to the right or to the left of you, or the person that you want to kind of snap that picture of and say, hey, I went to church today, so that they feel better about you. And yet your eternity is not sure because you have not made a claim that you need a Savior. You have not submitted yourself saying, He is Lord. And I would just challenge you today, don't receive this meal in a way that that actually drinks further judgment on your own heart because you're so blinded in this moment. No, I would actually invite you to enjoy this meal today to the fullest because it's for you as well. And so if you're here this morning and you've never said, I need a Savior, you're here this morning and you've never submitted to Him as Lord, can I just appeal to you today? If your heart tends to run from God and rebel against Him and look for ways to actually live for yourself, the Bible very clearly calls that sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uses the word that we transgress. We go against the boundary lines that God has called us to. We transgress those boundaries. 
But see, God loves you even in the midst of that. While we were sinners, he loved you so much that Christ died and gave up his life. That's what we remember in this meal. And in order to give you this gift of salvation, God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Not just so that you could sit at this table, but you could sit at the table that is to come. See, there's a connection that we need to make to the table that is to come. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Sounds like being clothed, not in the tent, but in the house. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Saying to me, these are the true words of God. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, we don't just simply look back to our past. We don't put Jesus Christ back on the cross. No, this meal of our redemption points us to a meal of our resurrection to come. What Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we might feast in this and remember the eternity to come and look beyond our circumstances today. You are invited to that meal because that way has been provided for you through none other than Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You can receive this gift of faith by, uh, of salvation by faith alone. What is that? that? That's very simply this. It's a decision of your heart. It's followed by the actions of your life. If you trust that Jesus died for your sins, would you just bow your head and pray this prayer with me right now? Dear God, I, I know that I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins and I now accept your offer of eternal life. Thank you for forgiving me of all of my sin. Thank you for my new life. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in your good way. If you're here this morning and you'd like to participate in this communion meal, whether you had opportunity to get the elements beforehand, our ushers are prepared to, to get some of those elements to you. I highly recommend open the bread side first. Pro tip. If you just raise your hand, we can, we can get the, that communion element to you. But we're just going to take a few moments in silence right now to examine our hearts. Whether it's submitting yourself to his lordship, whether it's being stirred out of the way that you have slipped into thinking about the temporary moments of life rather than eternity, that the Lord would speak to our hearts right now before we receive of this meal together.
There's something amazing on display when we 